This is Archive Atlanta, episode 72, Pond City Market. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. Recently, I have found myself talking a lot about my goals with this podcast, and as the last year and a half has passed, it's only becoming clearer that all I want is for people to think deeper about everyday places. Whether it's where you live, where you work, or where you play, if it's in Atlanta and it's not brand new, it has a story. Sure, some stories are older than others and some are more interesting than others, but I have fallen in love equally with teaching people about the Great Fire or the Race Riot as I have with researching someone's home and sharing with them who lived or died there. All of that led me to this week's episode, The Backstory of Pond City Market a place that so many locals and tourists visit, and yet may not have any idea about its history, at least beyond the Sears building. As the Beltline reigns in popularity, development projects along the Eastside Beltline continue to appear. I'll be honest with you, I really wanted to hate this place. Atlanta loves nothing more than manufactured cool, but I will admit it that I love it. I mean, I can't afford to shop there, but uh, when I have friends and family visiting, I usually put it as a stop on the list, and in the summertime... At least once every few months, I find myself up on the roof. And this is because they did a really great job with the preservation. I was able to tour the project before construction started, so it's really special for me to have the before picture in my head when I see the after. Um, And they have preserved as much as they could from the Sears history, but they've also honored the history of the amusement park in ways that many people may not realize. To begin, let's go back to 1820. The land encompassing Pond City Market was originally home to the Muskogee. Once the succession of land treaties took place, along with the infamous Trail of Tears in the 1830s, the land that is now Atlanta was broken up into roughly 200-acre landlots and sold to white men. When you stand today at this portion of Ponce de Leon, you are standing in Landlot 17, owned by Richard Todd. His plot stretches from Virginia Highland to about North Avenue. On his land were two natural springs. Not to get into early genealogy too much, but Todd's sister marries Hardy Ivy, a neighboring white settler whose cabin was in present-day downtown Atlanta. So the two families are connected, and they construct a road between their properties. Todd Road, as it was called, was one of the oldest roads in the city before we were even a city. The coolest part is that a piece of Todd Road still exists. It's just alongside Pond City Market on Glen Iris behind Troy Peerless Lofts. Thank you to a listener, by the way, for pointing out where it was. I kind of read about it and knew where it was, but my directionally challenged self didn't know how to find it. Even when Atlanta forms in 1847, this property is still considered the Sticks, the original OTP, if you will. It's a whole two miles away, and in the era of horse travel, that could take days to cover. In 1868, the construction of the airline railroad began, and today this path is what we call the Atlanta Beltline. Rail workers often came from around the country to lay track. And the way this worked is that workers normally camped alongside the railroad and built it and lived kind of as it was progressing. Part of the scope of work for this airline railroad was to bury an existing spring where the men had been getting their water. This spurred them to find a new source, and they stumbled upon the two springs on Richard Todd's land. These were two cold springs, only six inches apart, but very, very different. One was labeled as tasting sulfurous and most likely loaded with iron. As sick workers were seemingly cured of their ailments just about a week after drinking, their popularity rose. Two years later, former physician Henry Lumpkin Wilson 
dubbed them Ponce de Leon Springs after the famed explorer and his fountain of youth. Now here's a side note. Um, we do not pronounce Ponce the same way as everyone else. As a person whose Spanish was their very first language, when I first moved to Atlanta, I could not process this and it would bother me. Um, and now my parents are here and they also can't understand why they shouldn't be pronouncing this Ponce. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if it's just the way we said it and it just became a thing. I, you know, you can say that about Houston and Houston, which occurs in cities all over America. But yes, we pronounce our Ponce de Leon different. Within the year, this is a Victorian health resort. The land is now owned by John Armistead, who is a Todd descendant, and he wakes up at 1 a.m. early each morning to start water delivery across the city. He charges for both this service and then the rights of people and companies to enter into his property and drink from the springs. People start pouring in, pun intended, and by 1872, they are traveling from downtown Atlanta. Like I said earlier, this two-mile trip could take an entire day. The Kimball House Hotel would charge 50 cents for a round-trip excursion. In 1874, the game changed when the Atlanta Street Railway Company extended its mule-drawn trolley line down Peachtree Street up until the edge of the property. Ponsilian Avenue didn't yet exist. And so the streetcar company owned 30 feet of right-of-way off of Peachtree, and they would lead people to the springs. This trolley track was really the first iteration of the avenue, and what most people don't know is that right around the area that passes in front of Mary Max began a huge ravine. There was a creek that crossed between Myrtle and Argonne, so in order to make it out to the springs, the company had to erect a trestle bridge, a 270-foot-long train trestle. Later in history, this ravine was filled, and today it leaves little indication of the feat that it was to get from Peachtree Street to Pond City Market. In the 1870s and 1880s, the springs were more of a picnic area or health resort, and the attraction was very much designed and encouraged by streetcar companies to encourage ridership. So you have to remember that most cities, Atlanta especially, it's dusty, it's dirty, it's muddy, everything is run by coal, um, and so there's this desire to get out into nature, there's fresh air, there's clean water, um, and just like a better climate. So streetcar companies are jumping in, and what's happening is they have their riders that are commuting during the week to and from work, but they need to increase ridership on the weekends. So these weekend destinations have people paying five cents of their hard-earned money to ride past North Avenue and into the Springs. In 1879, a new streetcar route called Nine Mile Circle was created, and that ran through the growing white suburbs, taking people closer to Ponceleon Springs. Now a streetcar episode is very long overdue, um, and I will get started on that, and I promise it will be coming soon. Four years later, Nine Mile Circle files for a permit to build a pavilion at the Ponceleon Springs. This structure is designed by architect Gottfried Norman and built at a cost of $3,500. And this was the start of transforming this land into the amusement park that it would become. With the influx of new visitors, Armistead begins charging five cents to drink from the spring. In the never-ending competition between streetcar companies, the Atlanta Street Railway Company purchases the springs and the surrounding 30 acres in 1887. What was once natural, undeveloped land, a true getaway, now becomes developed. The land is then leased to N.C. Bosch, whose grand plans for the site include a beer garden, and he repaints the pavilion, um, gets a bowling alley set up, and exclaims that, quote, nothing in the form of liquor will be sold except good beer and light wines, end quote. 
1890, the streetcar company hired landscape designer Julius Hartman to develop a plan for the park. Hartman had already proven his genius with Little Switzerland, which was over near Grand Park, um, and Little Tyrol, which was actually further up along ponds closer to Peachtree. It's he who creates the four-acre Ponce de Leon Lake, where the Home Depot and the Whole Foods are today, um, along with smaller ponds throughout the property. By 1903, this is officially called Ponce de Leon Park. It's run by Ponce de Leon Amusement Company. Opening day was a rainy, muddy mess. But that did not stop Atlantans from coming to enjoy the theater, merry-go-round, laughing gallery, cave of the winds, penny arcade, Japanese ping pong, Ferris wheel, pony track, miniature railway, gypsy village, shooting gallery, knife board, two restaurants, popcorn and candy stands, two soda fountains, a three-quarter mile toboggan slide, and a really popular house band. This does not sound fun to you. Something's wrong because I want to go back in time to visit. This became the spot for outings and excursions. You see articles about the Salvation Army holding events here for kids, um, the women exchange fundraisers, and there's even an orphan parade that ends here, which was a parade led by Atlanta's wealthy automobile owners that literally drove a group of orphans around for a day of fun. World-famous opera singer Madame schumann Hank would give a concert in the skating rink, and it's said that populist Tom Watson accepted candidacy for president here. In 1906, the Ponce de Leon Park Association was created to purchase and manage the park. A $50,000 sum is invested into the grounds and the big lake is drained and a wooden baseball stadium is built to hold 60,000 spectators. I talked about this a lot in the Atlanta Crackers episode, but Ponce, as the locals called it, held the games for the Atlanta Crackers, which the streetcar company also had ownership stake in. So again, there is no coincidence that these amusements popped up on land owned and controlled by trolley companies and that necessitated their trolleys to get you there. Segregation at Ponce de Leon was also an issue as white mothers were upset that African-American nurses, which we'd probably call a nanny today, were allowed on the rides with their charges. So the mothers of the children being sent with their nurses are upset that their kids couldn't um, enjoy themselves, but... The mothers who were at the park with their kids were upset that black people are riding the rides. In the end, the management company takes a firm stance that nurses are not allowed to accompany children on the amusements. And in 1903, the city council actually passes an ordinance forbidding black attendees. By 1910, signs throughout the park state, quote, colored persons admitted as servants only, end quote. I have a 1911 fire map um, that shows the layout of the amusement park buildings and what they were labeled. It's really fun to see. I'm going to post it on social media. Um, But you can see the attractions. There's um, ice skating. There's a toboggan slide. There's a circle swing and games. These are all still things that are now on the roof of Pond City Market. But I definitely vote that they bring back the human roulette, whatever that was. And they had enchanted canals. That sound pretty fun. Now we fast forward to the 1920s. This was a boom time across America, but certainly so in Atlanta, as we launched the Forward Atlanta campaign. I have a mini episode in the making about Forward Atlanta, but essentially it was a booster campaign from the city in an effort to bring new corporations and corporate headquarters. And it was really successful. In 1925, Max Adler, vice president of Sears Roebuck in Chicago, came to Atlanta to survey the city and its potential for a new Sears office. He tells the papers he's, quote, looking forward to a time when we can establish a Sears factory in the Southeast, end quote. 
Not sure if he's in on the secret, but that time came very quickly because by the December of the same year, construction on the building was set to begin at once. The Ford factory had already built their office in 1914, and today those are the Ford factory lofts. And in 1923, the old Ponce baseball stadium burned and the new state-of-the-art concrete and steel structure came in its place. Spiller Field sat in what is now the Whole Foods Home Depot parking lot. My favorite thing to do is if you ever go to Ponce City Market and you go to the roof, um, if you pull up a aerial photo of the ball field, it's really cool to show people the layout and then you could show them the remaining magnolia in the outfield. But back to Sears. The goal was a 3 million square foot branch mail order house and a retail store designed by George Nimmons. Sears goes and purchases a 16-acre track where the Ponce de Leon Park stood, and then the city enters into concessions with roads. The city authorizes closing a road so that Sears can have full Ponce de Leon Avenue frontage. Fulton County agrees to pay the cost of grading and improving North Avenue from Kennesaw to Angier, and an even longer list of street improvements is discussed and negotiated. But I just want to point out the striking modern parallels here and how 2020 Atlanta deals with attracting new businesses. Leaders are very quick to offer tax breaks, incentive, and other promises, often at the expense of local residents or schools. But that's another soapbox for another day. The famous Ponce de Leon Springs, a landmark older than the city itself, is capped and turned into a sewer. Today, it would be under the east wing of the building. These headquarters would employ 1,200 clerks, all managed by J.H. Beale. Beale was credited with selecting Atlanta for this new site, and he and his wife moved into the Georgian Terrace. He announced that the Sears building would have a steel viaduct running through the building to make it possible to receive train shipments. If you visit today, you can walk um, through this area. It's basically the connecting area that goes to the Beltline. In July of 1926, the papers were abuzz with news of the August 1st opening date. Carloads of merchandise are being brought in to load the 60,000 square foot first floor retail space. 200 local men and women were set to work on the sales floor with another 1,000 in the mail order department. Over the years, Sears Roebuck would add in a radio show broadcasted from the tower called Dinner Bell RFD and at a farmer's market in the rear of the property that ran for 17 years. The public store portion of the building closed in 1979, but continued as a Sears headquarter until 1987. 1990 is when the city of Atlanta purchased it to be used as City Hall East, which is what many Atlantans have memory of today. I was actually talking to my husband about this, and he pointed out that the bottom floor was also home to Lee Haney's gym, which was a 20,000 square foot fitness center that was open from like 93 to 2006. Um, he went there, so for him, that was the memories of this building. In 2010, the building was closed and Pond City Market officially opened in 2014. What I love and appreciate about the developers of Pond City Market is that they put a small-scale amusement park on the roof of the building to honor this history. And if you've been up there, you know that they have an, an alpine slide of sorts. Um, they have the swing. They have the games. The restaurant up there is called Nine Mile Station in honor of the streetcar line. Um, there's another place called RFD Social in reference to the radio station. Inside, there is Spiller Park Coffee, which is a homage to the baseball stadium across the street. I don't know much about restaurant marketing, but from all my research, the gist here seems to be that you look up local history and you use those names. And I am here for it. They did this really well in Summerhill, too. So there you have it, the story of Ponce de Leon Springs, Ponce de Leon Park, the Sears Roebuck Building, and eventually Ponce City Market.
Thank you so much for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps people find um, the show and then share these important stories with others. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll see you next week.